the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Every morning is a new opportunity to take in the news of the day and the challenges of life and try to make sense of it all. Right now, we've got a show that tackles the topics and asks what you think. So get ready to start your day with a bold look at history as it happens. Let's learn, live, and sometimes laugh together. It's the Mark Davis Show on 660 AM. The answer. All right, everybody, plug on in, get comfortable. This is just going to be great. How do I know? Because I've lived it already. (laughs) Often is the time that I've had these folks who have walked on the moon or done other things in the adventures that captivated me when I was a kid and have captivated me ever since. And they're live, as is virtually everything we do on the show. But I have been in touch for a while, back and forth, with the incredible Gene Krantz. He is 90. He was in his mid-30s. You see the video of all these guys, you know, the Apollo astronauts, and there's Gene Kranz. He looks like he's 50. He's 30, like 35. And he's 90 now and just doing great, as you are about to see. This is a kid out of Toledo, Ohio, who is interested in flight and ultimately space flight. Not in being an astronaut, though, but in being behind a a panel of lights and meters and uh, first for test pilots in the Chuck Yeager era. We recorded this day before yesterday, which, by the way, was Chuck Yeager's 100th birthday. He passed away a couple years ago. But, man, all the astronauts looked up to this guy. This was a man who flew in 1947 for the first time faster than the speed of sound in the Bell X-1. It took uh, 14 years after that to 1961 for us to put uh, people in space. The Russians beat us. The Russians beat us at a lot of things. And Gene Kranz was there helping America first catch the Russians and then surpass them as we beat them to the moon. We made it to the moon for Apollo 11 and Gene Kranz was there as we almost ran out of fuel. Uh, in attempting to land Neil and Buzz on the lunar surface in the summer of 1969. He was there a couple of years earlier when we had the Apollo fire that killed astronauts on the launch pad in Florida. And he was there running the show as we had a flight blow up on the way to the moon, Apollo 13, and we had to get those guys back alive. You'll remember Ed Harris playing Gene Kranz in the wonderful Ron Howard movie, Apollo 13. The life he has led, the part of history that he has occupied, what he has meant to me, and I hope now to you it led to this incredible opportunity to spend some time with Gene Kranz. It's an incredible honor to be joined by a gentleman who's been at the mission control panels and in the flight director of VEST, and more on that in a moment, with uh, the great Gene Krantz through the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and beyond. His voice, his testimony, his uh, history that he's able to give has been of immeasurable value. So what a pleasure it is to say hi to Gene Krantz from his Houston area home. Welcome, sir. How you doing? I'm doing uh, super. I just uh, got my day started, and... uh... 
Unfortunately, I'm working in taxes right now, but this was a welcome break. Well, to, uh, it's, <laughs> I, I hope that talking to us is, is better than dealing with the IRS. I, that's where the bar <laughs> is set. I think we're going to be okay. I, I thought the best thing to do is to go chronologically. And in this wonderful documentary, A Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo, where you figure so prominently. That was a few years ago, and, and it also had Chris Kraft in there, and, and, and it had Glenn Lunny, so many folks, and you're in there talking about how when we started going into space in 1961 uh, with, with Alan Shepard's first flight, and it's not like the notion of mission control was already baked in. We had the notion of you know following your, your, your Chuck, Ye- Chuck Yeager, 100th birthday today, did you know? No, I didn't. Look at, I didn't check the uh, into Chuck right now. What a what an incredible incredible legacy that is. But from the Jaegers and the X-15s, there was the notion of of keeping track of test pilots as they uh, you know poked their way into the stratosphere. But how was the whole idea of a mission control building? How was all that put together? Well, mission control was uh, really used uh, back in the uh, flight test days. Uh, basically, we uh, uh, had telemetry data coming down from an aircraft. We had voice communications with the pilot in the aircraft. And basically, we uh, tracked the uh, uh, mission as he was proceeding through the test, as accomplishing the test points. But also, we uh, paid a lot of attention to what we say flight limits. So if he was nearing the flight limits or about to exceed the flight limits, we'd warn him. Uh, my experience actually was as a flight test engineer in the B-52, and I worked out at the Mission Control Center at the Holloman Test Range out there. And uh, that gave me sort of a uh, setup into moving into this place called Mission Control. The main difference was, however, we were uh, testing an aircraft, uh, aircraft that moved about five miles a minute, and in space, we upped it to about five miles per second. So that was the real challenge was <laughs> uh, the, uh, the environment that we're going to, but in particular, bringing in a group of individuals who really were superb engineers, but they were not operators. And the real challenge in Project Mercury was to build an operational capability for spaceflight. And that whole operations thing, the whole notion of astronauts talking to Houston, that wasn't Mercury at all. All the six Mercury flights were run right there from the Cape in Florida. Yes, they were. And uh, the thing was, though, is that it was a uh, that was a time when we were sort of feeling uh, feeling our, our roles. Uh, the astronauts and uh, the uh, spacecraft, the Mercury spacecraft, were trying to say, well, what is this ground going to do? And then we on the ground were looking at how can we help the crew? Well, it turned out pretty straightforward. They became believers in mission control because uh, with no computer on board their Mercury spacecraft, they did not know they were in orbit. So we would advise them from both the Cape and the Bermuda tracking station, say, uh, you go for one orbit, you go for two orbits. And as the mission went along, you go for the mission. So it was really a uh, relationship that developed through the process of experiencing the business new business of space flight. And these people gathered, paying the closest possible technological attention to whoever happened to be in space. You, you think of mission control, and we'll get to the Apollo stories and how what a, what a well-oiled machine it was. It was not without its fits and starts. Gene shared with me through an email, and I want you to tell us this story a little bit. As we got ready to send two people into space, 
on the Gemini program. And the first Gemini flight was going to be uh, Gus Grissom and John Young. But that was Gemini 3. 1 and 2 were unmanned tests of the Gemini hardware. Share with us, if you will, the Gemini 2 launch story. You're all gathered there. And was it a story of where the, the media lights were plugged in, the whole building shorts out at the moment of launch, and you're in the dark? This was uh, this was the uh, exact sequence you described. We were in the process of we had we had moved the mission control teams to the Houston area, and we're building up the mission control in Houston, but it had yet to be brought online and used in the comp- in accomplishing a mission. So we had a team at the Cape who would basically fly the early Gemini missions, the Gemini two, three, and basically we transitioned at four. But uh, we, when we went down to the Cape for the Gemini 2 mission, we were surprised that uh, the room was full of media. Normally, uh, they were up in the, uh, the viewing rooms or they were off-site. And, uh, well, we uh, got down to T0. We counted 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and then it was blackout. <laughs> the media turned on all the lights and their cameras and everything else. And it was uh, really uh, amazing that uh, I had a responsibility for sending a series of commands to back up the sequence in the Gemini 2 mission. And all I could see were the the, uh, communication panel lights were battery-powered. So I was trying to read my stopwatch to execute commands based on the very faint lights coming from my communications panel. It didn't work very well. And uh, we started getting reports from, uh, we had two ships that were tracking this, and they were reporting what was going on in the mission. John Hodge, who was in the testing at the uh, new mission control center in Houston, would report status. And uh, after the flight was over, which was a very short flight, about 20 minutes, uh, he told Chris Kraft he ought to bring a flashlight with him next time he goes <laughs> to the Cape. Awesome. That did not go very well. Is, it is one of, one of the parts of being tough and competent is being well-prepared. Our conversation with Gene Kranz continues in just a moment. I, needless to say, I could spend days with this gentleman. It, it took some discipline for me to compactify this and, and get into actual missions involving actual astronauts. And maybe this is part of your childhood. And maybe it's not. Uh, I hope that it's just something that takes you back to a time of an America with a can-do spirit and a patriotism and a sense of purpose that Gene Kranz embodies in incredible, incredible ways. More of our conversation with the great Gene Kranz. Next. You digging this as much as I am? I hope so. I, I hope you're digging it half as much as I am. Just the best. And this magnificent conversation this week with the great Gene Krantz of Apollo Flight Director fame. Uh, but before we get to the Apollo missions, we are deep in the in the earlier 60s, Mercury, Gemini. And I sort of asked him about his path into just the crux of American history. What was the first mission that you were flight director for? I was flight director. I actually uh, worked with Chris Kraft in the John Glenn mission as the deputy flight director. Uh, in the uh, Gemini 3 mission, basically I went down to the Cape with Kraft as deputy, and it was only in Gemini 4 that I truly 
was assigned my own team as a flight director. Well, let's spend a moment on that because there is Jim McDivitt and Ed White, the first American spacewalk. And listen, Russia was beating us at everything. They beat us into orbit. They beat us into space. Alexei Leonov was the first man to, to walk in space. But Ed White, summer of 65, Gemini 4, this was a very, very big deal. Was it kind of, I mean, it has to be a tense thing. The first time a guy is going to be, you know, tethered to flying outside the spacecraft. Well, the, uh, the uh, sequence started off. Uh, I was called over to Chris Kraft's office, and I was expecting uh, him to ask me, well, how are you doing? Are you ready to step up to the flight director roles? He didn't ask that question. He said, you know, uh, we're going to try and beat the Russians with an EVA, uh, and we got a plan in place. We can't tell the media because we got to get approval from the president. And what I want you to do is to work with Ed and the test team in the vacuum chambers and uh, write some mission roles and write the plan. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the second, <laughs> second my first mission, <laughs> second flight. And they're asking we're going to do an EVA. And then the key word was you got to do it in secret. So what happened is that I would uh, quit work after eight hours, about 4.30. I'd go home, get some supper, and then I'd go out to Johnson Space Center and work with Ed White and the crew systems guys writing the procedures, developing the mission rules. And it uh, came to the point where I had uh, I needed some help because uh, we were going to do this in secret. We had a package we imaginatively, imaginatively called this first EVA Plan X. Yes, <laughs> clever. And we wrote all the instructions <laughs> and the guidelines for Plan X and put them in sealed packages and set them to the tracking stations around the world. And the key tracking station was over Carnarvon, Australia, mm-hmm. where they opened this package. They had a doctor there. The doctor almost went into cardiac arrest when he said that over the Carnarvon site, they're going to depress the cockpit and prepare for an EVA. Great. Well, that, that was the kind of guts poker we played in the uh, early years of space. That is, it's remarkable. And Mission Control found its feet. The Gemini program enabled us to, to learn the skill sets to go to the moon. 1966 turns to 1967, and we're ready to send three people into space for the Apollo flights. We have mentioned Ed White. We have mentioned Gus Grissom. Those two, Grissom and White and Roger Chaffee, die in the Apollo fire in January of 1967. Where were you on that horrible day? I was uh, I was in mission control for the uh, test uh, preceding the day. Uh, it, it, there were two tests that were running. They're essentially dry run or rehearsals for the launch day countdown. One was with electrical power connected to the uh, spacecraft, which is what they call the plugs-in test. And then the subsequent day was the plugs-out test, where they actually disconnect the power coming in from the launch complex and the spacecraft on its own. So I did the uh, uh, testing, the entire testing, the day before. We had a lot of communications problems, and I uh, hung up overnight. I went probably about uh, 30, 35-hour stint there and started the countdown for the uh, final dress rehearsal and handed over to Chris Kraft around lunchtime. And then I went home to get something to eat and take a break. And... uh, Shortly thereafter, as soon as I got home, I got a call from a neighbor. came over, pounded the door. It says uh, uh, they had a fire in the launch pad. They think the crew's dead. And uh, so I 
hopped back in the car, got out to Mission Control. The place was uh, locked up, so I walked, came and got in through the uh, service elevators and uh, the back end of the control center and walked into that room, and it was deadly. And uh, this was uh, the first time many of these kids had seen, uh, had been there when a good friend of theirs, that was the crew, died. Uh, I had been in, uh, I was fighter pilot over in Korea, and we lost uh, five pilots uh, during my tour there, and I packed all the stuff to send it home for one of the guys that lived in our hooch. So I decided I had to take charge of this team and build them into a tough and competent. We had to establish a mindset that was say never again and that was where the words tough and competent came from and that is the title of gene krantz's book about leadership which everyone should read it took the better part of two years for us to fly an apollo flight apollo 7 wally shara uh, the irrepressible walt cunningham and don isley and uh, you were doing if i have my history right you were flight director for odd numbered flights this is a good place for me to interrupt myself and hop into the because we're about to get to Apollo missions that 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 actually uh, succeeded. Boy, did they! And Gene Kranz was there in that vest in that mission control building as we went. And, and one of the best stories coming up. I'll get we get to, into the newsroom with Nikki. One of his one of my favorite stories that he told was of a mission that he was not the flight director for. Because here's what you got to understand: if he's there wearing the headset. And wired into everybody in the room for Apollo 11 for the moon landing, Apollo 13 for the rescue, Apollo 15, a first use of the the lunar rover, Apollo 17, our final moon landing. It it, it is such an intense nose to the grindstone uh, kind of duty that you're not experiencing like a real person. You're not experiencing like I did as a kid or as like adults of the day did. So he's doing the odd numbered missions, trading off with Chris Kraft. So that means for an even-numbered one, like Apollo 8, where we sent Borman, Lovell, and Anders to the moon for the first time, humans to the moon, to orbit it and come back, he got to kind of experience that just like a real American. It's unbelievable to hear him tell that story. And you will, next, 9.30. Nikki's in the newsroom. Nine thirty six, six sixty a.m. The answer. Little petty of the heartbreakers. Shadow of a doubt. I'm not being glib here. Just a way to just segue into this because there were plenty of doubts as to whether the Apollo missions were even going to work. Uh, we'd had the Apollo fire, and we had the the President Kennedy uh, edict of, of 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 achieving the goal of landing a man on the moon, returning him safely to the Earth before the decade is out. I mean, it was almost the end of 1968, and we hadn't flown a mission yet, and there were like four missions that were going to be necessary, 7, 8, 9, and 10, before we even got to Apollo 11, got to test the lunar module hardware, got to do this, got to do that. So Gene Krantz picks up as we first successfully launched just three guys, three guys into space for the first time. Well, what happened, what happened after the Apollo 1 fire, I was assigned as division chief for the uh, flight control side, responsibility for all the teams. And I could not do the uh, job of leading the organization as well as leading a flight control team. So I elected to go with all the odd-numbered missions in there. 
So I was an observer of that during that period of time, and it was probably a, really a great opportunity for me because I could join in. I could feel the passion, the emotion. I could get involved personally and emotionally with what was going on up there. And when they started reading from the book of Genesis up circling the moon, I mean, that was probably one of the most beautiful Christmas Eves of my life. And uh, it was, uh, I was really happy that I wasn't on the console doing the job because many times later in key missions, I was never experienced. I had never had the opportunity to experience and have the emotion of some great accomplishment. Yeah, because and I, I learned that from watching that that wonderful Mission Control Unsung Heroes of Apollo documentary, and I got to thinking, you're right there at the forefront of history, and we'll get to Apollo 11 here in a second, but you will never be able to tell the story that I could tell of being a kid just watching it on TV because you were so fused to it, so participatory in that history. So if you're on the odd-numbered missions, let's give a, a little bit of recognition and love to the first flight of the lunar module. Apollo 9, uh, Jim McDivitt, David Scott, Rusty Schweikert didn't take it to the moon, but flew it in Earth orbit just to see if it could fly. This was, this was, uh, I was fortunate that I uh, flew uh, the first three uh, lunar module missions, the uh, Gemini 4, uh, excuse me, Apollo 4, which is an unmanned flight test that uh, the computer went belly up on us. We had to fly the whole mission. Uh, by ground command. Then we had the uh, uh, Apollo 9 mission, where basically I now had a crew in it, and I had to separate the spacecraft, and we had to come up with plans that in case we could not perform the rendezvous maneuvers to get the lunar module back to the command module, we had to perform a rescue mission. And this turned out to be very important for uh, later missions in there, because we developed a series of checklists, we developed power-down capabilities, uh, we got an experienced base from the Gemini uh, 4 and the uh, Gemini 5, I mean, and the Gemini 9 missions that uh, really paid off in later missions uh, during on the lunar part of the mission. Part of the program. Let, let's spend a second before we hop to Apollo 11, because it is the late 60s. And when Borman Lovell and Anders returned, having read, and I've played it so many times, the audio where they say, good night, good luck, and, and Merry Christmas from all of us to you on the good earth. And I play that constantly because it's fused to my memory. Give us your memories of being a, a gentleman. You're in your mid-30s. America is in huge turmoil, Vietnam, riots, all kinds of things. Before we even foot, put footprints on the moon, these missions did give us rare moments of American unity. That was, uh, you know, you know, I was thought about it. I flew over in Korea, worked in flight tests right around the line. So I participated in many of the great leap forwards, but it was in a more isolated mode. When we're in the space program, we're totally visible to the media, the press, the world, everything else. Sure, we were doing it not ourselves we were doing it as as teammates with the with the people that had built the spacecraft and the American public and then the people of the world. So it was the first time we had an opportunity to really address the impact of what we were doing. I, I really go back to the words that President Kennedy said, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they're easy, but because they are hard. 
And when he said those words, not because they're easier, but because they're hard, boy, that was probably the toughest time of my entire life. I uh, I want to go into the mission control moment of Apollo 11. It's July 20th, and we've landed. We're, 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 let's, let's get to the landing because we've all seen this. We've all uh, visited it. I've taken this listenership through it so many, many times. Charlie Duke, who would later walk on the moon in Apollo 16, is the CAPCOM, the capsule communicator. It's his job to communicate to the astronauts uh, just about everything. At what point did you tell Charlie to like way too much talking going on here? Leave them alone. Let them do their job because did it get a little too chatty? Well, it uh, generally, generally we had uh, many problems associated with the descent that were not portrayed in any one of the movies. Uh, basically, as a result of a dock undocking issue, we were landing along. We changed the axis. Tip, we tipped the axis of the orbit, and uh, so that was one thing. The other thing, we had a computer bug that was starting computer program alarms. Mm-hmm. We also had a a modification that uh, impacted our communication. So it was a battle every step of the way. We would normally land with about uh, 20 seconds, excuse me, 120 seconds of fuel remaining. And here with uh, Charlie Duke, we're counting down, I'm counting down uh, 60 seconds, 30 seconds. And about the time that we'd say 15 seconds, we finally realized the crew was going through shutdown. And this, if you see the movie in the picture, Charlie Duke is wiping his forehead as we were sweating that out. <laughs> and uh, you got a bunch of guys down here turning blue. And uh, Charlie said it for all of us. Yeah, I can only imagine. So since it didn't happen, it's okay to talk about it. What would an abort have looked like? If you run out of fuel, you don't crash. You just shoot the descent stage out, fire up the upper half of the limb, and get on out of there, correct? Well, that's that depends upon where you are in the trajectory. We have we had two trajectory curves we called the dead man's curve. Oh, that's good. Okay, and what this was is that the uh, lunar module engine, the ascent engine, is a relatively small, limited thrust engine, where mm-hmm. the descent engine is a high thrust engine. And as you're using more propellant as you're going down, you're using all the propellant in that high thrust issue. So once you get to the dead man's curves, you actually have to land on the moon because you don't have enough uh, propulsion capability to arrest your descent rate and then start ascending again. So what you have to do is you have to go down to the lunar surface, land, and then abort off the lunar surface. So that's those were the curves we watched. Uh, okay, this is a dumb guy question, but what if they run out of fuel and they're still 50 feet above the surface? Well, that's they're going to have a very rough landing. <laughs> <and we hope laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they, they're in an orientation where they can uh, stage. Uh, but again, they'll probably, as a result of that, depends upon what their descent rate. Their descent rate, you know, you say it's about 100 uh, feet per second. Well, that sounds like awful slow. No, it isn't. That's more than 60 miles per hour. Yeah. So so it's, uh, that's the descent rates the crews are working with. And uh, Neil Armstrong is hunting around because he now has to land in a uh, very rocky boulder field with big craters. And that's why he used almost 120 seconds of fuel trying to find a landing site. And uh, to the best of our knowledge, at that time, we had 17 seconds of fuel remaining. 
Well, when the crew landed. And when they did, I want to spend a moment on it, because you'd think that the landing happens, contact light, 413 is in, the numerical reference to the flight plan, that everybody then just kicks back, they job well done. Oh, no, 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 no. At that time, it's something called stay for T1. T1 is where we determine, okay, we've landed, but are they going to sink into the surface? Is the thing going to tip over? Is everything okay? What were the things in like the minute or two after landing where you had to determine, is it okay to stay? Well, the key thing is we went through uh, three stay-no-stay decisions. While the world's celebrating, my team is going through a first stay-no-stay. We're concerned. Uh, When we landed, did we uh, basically did the thrusting engine knock any any elements up from the surface into the bottom underside of the lunar module? We had the propulsion system had to settle down. We had uh, helium that we used to pressurize the system there. So is that all okay? And then that was the first two minutes. And then we had another one at eight minutes. And these times were picked where the lunar module could lift off and rendezvous using its propulsion capabilities back with command and service module. So basically, we went through a series of two minutes, eight minutes, and two hours until finally we could power down and say, holy cow, we just landed the moon. But no, that wasn't it because we had to go into a press conference. <laughs> so, in so, here- so it was about uh, three and a half hours after we landed the moon that I could get back into mission control. And at that time, they were not celebrating. They're milling around trying to figure out, is the crew going to go to sleep or are they going to go do an EVA? Well, we already knew the crew was going to do an EVA, but we wanted to give them the opportunity to sleep if they needed it. So it wound up being, because, you know, in central time, the landing was like three-something, and Neil's first footprints were at almost uh, 10. Would that, was that an accelerated schedule? Was the original plan where Neil would have been setting foot on the moon, you know, like at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning? Well, actually, the original thing, that was to a great extent undecided because the flight surgeons and the medical community really wanted to have a very fresh, fresh astronaut uh, take that first step on the moon. And we knew as uh, flight test people, we had worked in things, the exhilaration of just accomplishing the first step of the mission and getting ready to do the rest was going to keep them all pumped up. Of so course. Yeah, nobody's gonna. Nobody's gonna sleep. And that's it. Took there was a lot of milling around, but the crew had to suit up, check out the systems, make sure everything's right, and then go out and do the surface EVA. So before we get onto the surface, there is something that happened. I want to. I've got a little bit of audio. I want to play it and then ask you what your thoughts are, particularly because it's you. Here's Buzz Aldrin. Uh, stand by because I'm going to pause that right here, right now. Because number one, time, and number two, suspense. <laughs> the clock is a cruel taskmaster, but I want to save this because if, if you've enjoyed this, the rest, I think we're about more than halfway through. Oh, but what lies ahead? Oh, what lies ahead? Gene Krantz is quite the devoted Catholic. Part of the challenge of scheduling our interview was that he goes to Mass at 9 o'clock every morning. <laughs> so that, that's part of the reason we didn't do anything live. And what a gift that wound up being because we taped it after the show Tuesday. And thus I just had all the time in the world, all the time in the world. As we begin this in the nine o'clock hour tomorrow, uh, Gene Krantz talks about the moment that you're about, that you'll hear when Buzz Aldrin asks everybody to reflect on what's happened in these last couple of hours, the moon landing, they haven't walked out yet in, in their own way. 
and what he did at that time is Buzz Aldrin took communion on the moon. And then, of course, we have the triumphs of Apollo 11, the near tragedy of 13, the wrap-up of the Apollo program, Gene's bitterness that we stopped so early, and where he thinks we're all going next. It's so great. And the rest of it will be in tomorrow's 9 o'clock hour. Sound good? Exit ramp next. Texas Music Birthday, Gary Clark Jr. He is 40, feeling like a million off of this land. It's blues, it's rock, it's soul, a little bit of everything with Gary Clark Jr. So we will let him take us out. For producer Ron Decay Marlin on the old Twitter X at producer Ron Decay, R-O-N-D-A capital K. Thank you, Jimmy, for filling in for Matt, doing all the technical guru skills. And thanks so much to Nikki Whaley for news excellence. Speaking of Nikki's, the similarly named Nikki Haley has her, uh, listen, why don't y'all, one of y'all go to that thing for me? <laughs> At least one person will be there. And then call me tomorrow and tell me how it goes. Because I am curious. Ambassador Haley, Governor Haley, bless her heart. And she's just going to get stomped in her home state here in uh, nine days. So how's that uh, Dallas gathering for her going to go? Somebody go and be my reporter and uh, check in with us tomorrow. Also tomorrow, various other things going on in the political world. Uh, We will wrap up the week because, hey, it'll be the Friday show. Wow. Go to 660AMEanswer.com. Click that Give Life Food for the Poor banner. Throw me a couple of bucks. Let's feed some kids in Latin America, the Caribbean. Make it another great day. Thank you. I'm Mark Davis. See you in the morning right here. 660AMEanswer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.